uh, they do meet at 5.30 up there. Uh, so we'll be joining them at 5.30 for worship and for psalm singing. And I did also want to just mention that uh, we're going to be singing the first verse of each psalm of the month between September and December. If you recall, I'm, we, we, we've had a psalm of the month uh, probably since before that, I think. Yeah, a while before that. But we're going to be doing the first verse of each one from September through December. And there's hand motions, uh, so there will be more, more instruction and help with all of that. But I did want to just mention that. Um, was it, did that kind of cover it, Jill? Pretty good. Okay. Um, oh, I did also want to just mention that after, after worship this morning, we're going to have a second hour that uh, is a bit different. We're going to ask the uh, – it's going to be adults with senior high and uh, – the uh, senior high classes and junior high classes, so that there can be a presentation on the role of deacon. Since we're having a uh, deacon election this coming uh, Wednesday, uh, we want to take some time to talk about that office. Kind of the same idea uh, as to uh, the other uh, Lord's Day when we talked about the office of elder. So, um, so please um, uh, stay for that if you're able to. Um, and then I think that's all the actual announcements I wanted to get to. Um, not seeing anybody flagging me down, I'll, I'll assume that's true. And um, now I'm going to uh, – I do have an edict to read. One of the other things that sort of uh, caught us a little bit – caught me by surprise, maybe no one else, is that uh, Greg is actually up at the uh, Salt and Light Congregation up in Longmont to preach in HP's absence. So, uh, so I'm going to read the edict, uh, but we went to – Okay, so here's the edict. Notice is hereby given that on the first day of February in the year 2023, a congregational meeting would be held to elect new elders and deacons for Springs Reformed Church. The meeting would be held at 6.30 p.m. at Colorado Springs Christian School, 4845 Mallow Road, Colorado Springs, Colorado. By order of the session, this 20, uh, 29th day of January in the year 2023. So with that, I will uh, turn our worship service over to HP. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. Keith, Keith, uh, Keith is reminding me of what he uh, asked me to do right before I got up here. And that is to uh, just remind everybody that we're going to be taking the uh, Lord's Supper next uh, Lord's Day. And one of the things we just want to ask, uh, if there are any visitors or if you know you're going to have um, uh, someone here that's a visitor, uh, not a member of our denomination, and they would like to take communion, we would just ask that they proactively meet with the session or reach out to the session, find some way for us to do a meeting so that we could hear of their uh, faith in Christ and um, uh, have a discussion with them about uh, that and the, the coming to the table. And um, we, again, we, we just ask you to be proactive about that if you do have someone that falls into that category. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to HP. Thank you. Good morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here with you all and worship with you and for Greg to preach at our church in Longmont as well. I see one of your elders in crutches and the other in a sling, and I can only assume that Greg's in a back brace or something, too, <laughs> and that you've beat them up pretty well. Um, let's begin our time of worship uh, with a call to worship from Psalm 66, and we'll also sing from Psalm 66 in just a moment as well. So hear God's call this morning. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. 
Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God how awesome are your deeds. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Let's do that and stand and sing praises to God's name with Psalm 66, Selection A. Let's pray. And at the appropriate time, if you join, as is printed in your bulletin, praying the Lord's Prayer with me. Our holy God, we pray that you would uh, meet with us in a special and powerful way as we worship this morning, that you would uh, stir us to shout for joy and to sing the glory of your name as we've already begun to do, uh, to join the whole earth in proclaiming and celebrating uh, what you have done on this day, uh, Resurrection Day, the Lord's Day. Uh, be glorified in our worship, we pray. And hear us as we pray together as the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And please be seated. Come to our readings this morning. I understand you're reading through the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we come to Ezekiel chapter 19 first. You can read along as I read or, or listen to God's word here in this description of uh, some of the downfall of uh, Judah's kings and of Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 19. As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions. She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion. And he learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw, as she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he walked about among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities. And the land in its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. Then nations set, set against him on every side from their provinces, and they spread their net over him. He was captured in their pit, and they put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong branches uh, fit for scepters of rulers, and its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered. The fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from its branch. It has consumed its shoots and fruit, so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation, and has become a lamentation. And then also, uh, Galatians chapter 4, for our New Testament reading. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 through verse 20. Paul writes, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your, your eyes and given them to me. So have I become uh, your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, 
not only when I am present with you, my children, uh, not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We'll end our readings uh, from God's word there. Let's now worship God with our uh, giving of our tithes and offerings, and as we do that, we'll sing uh, from Psalm 119, Psalm 119, Selection G. Keep your promise to your servant, I Could you please stand with me this morning for prayer, if you're physically able? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have uh, set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Our Father in heaven, you are merciful and gracious. You are abounding in steadfast love. And Father, our hearts long to praise you in an upright fashion. We long to praise you with upright hearts, and we recognize that you are worthy of all praise and glory. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. It's, it's a day with uh, cold uh, weather and uh, snow that has made travel difficult. But it reminds us that you take care of us in all the details of our life. We need moisture, we need, uh, the mountains need this for the snowpack. Uh, this is part of your beautiful creation that we see lived out today, and we thank you for it. Father, we do pray and ask for your uh, mercy on each of us as we travel today. But again, we thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for this chance to worship together, 
to come together in fellowship, to pray uh, as, a, as a body of Christ, as a family, to uh, hear from your word, Father, especially. And we ask that you would help us with that. Father, we thank you for the means of grace that are so abundant, and we just are grateful for them. Father, we thank you for the peace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, the fact that we are in a position of peace with you because of the finished work of our Lord Jesus and his, his, uh, the salvation he has poured out upon us. Father, confirm for each one of us your promise. Confirm in our hearts that these things are true. And Father, because they're true, and they're, because they're from you, we can believe them and live our lives based on that. Heavenly Father, we do pray, however, that you would forgive us of our uh, sin, that you would forgive us for the ways that we fall short of your law, for the many ways in which we, uh, in thought, word, and deed, do in fact sin. Father, we don't love you as we should with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We don't love our neighbors ourselves as we should. We do not. Uh, we don't. We don't love each other as Jesus loves us, which is our goal and our our, our example. And so, Father, I do plead with you for forgiveness. Father, we cling to our Lord Jesus and to his work. We, uh, we, we hold on to his side that's been pierced, knowing that that was pierced for us. Father, we do also pray this morning <clears throat> for uh, the society and the world around us. I pray, Father, that uh, you would cause greater stability to reign throughout the world. I pray that you would give us greater stability in our own nation and in our local governments. Father, I pray that you would restrain tyrants around the world who seek to impose their will as opposed to uh, doing your will, Father. I pray that you would restrain forces of anarchy that try to turn everything upside down, including governments, including law and order. And I pray, Father, that you would frustrate those efforts and restrain them and punish them. Father, also restrain and punish corporations that facilitate the destructive lies that permeate our society. Father, these are lies that are intended to kill us and kill our children. They're intended to diminish the beauty of your creation. They're intended to uh, obscure the gospel. They're intended to distract. All of these things, Father, are contrary to your perfect law, and I pray, Father, that you would uh, punish them and that you would restrain them. Father, I pray that you would shut the mouth of liars that want us to believe that murder is a choice and gender is up to us, and Father, I, and the fact that your marvelous creation is an accident. Father, please shut the mouth of liars and exalt our King Jesus. Father, I also pray that the bright light of your gospel would shine through the cracks in these lies and the beauty of your truth would overwhelm and capture the hearts of your children everywhere. Father, I do uh, pray for Stan and Rachel Brubaker. I thank you for this couple that is so uh, faithful and uh, committed to this congregation. I thank you for their marriage and the way you have blessed them in that. I pray for the, or thank you for the way you have blessed both of them with grace throughout their lives. Pray, Father, that you would bless them in their vocations that they have, uh, not only here in this church, but in their work and in their neighborhood and in their families. 
Father, continue your work of sanctification in this couple and bless them. Father, I thank you for the Hebron uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church. I thank you for Daniel Hemkin and for the, the many years he has labored in that congregation. I thank you for the leadership that helps him and pray, Father, that you would raise up more leaders, another uh, elder to help in the, the work that they have to do. Father, I pray that you would strengthen Daniel and uh, Kim for the work that they have to do as parents and as, um, as uh, leaders in the church. Father, strengthen them and encourage them and encourage the entire congregation with growth. Father, I do pray that you would not only uh, cause them to grow in numbers, but also in sanctification. Father, I do uh, thank you for this uh, opportunity now this morning to hear from your word. I thank you for the, the, uh, the diligent study that HP has put into uh, studying your word so that he can open, to, open it before us with faithful hearts. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear everything that you have for us this morning. And I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to uh, Psalm 119, Selection J, and that'll be our prayer or psalm for illumination.
Turn with me this morning to uh, Mark chapter 15. We're looking at uh, our Lord's death on the cross here in chapter 15, um, and and looking at this passage in uh, in some detail, but not um, not nearly exhaustively. I'll also be just considering uh, this topically as well, considering the cross and the call of the cross uh, on our lives uh, topically this morning. So I'm going to begin with uh, verse 21, Mark 15, verse 21, read through verse uh, 39. Hear God's holy, infallible word. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with, his, with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders heard it. They began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. We'll end our reading there. Uh, my son Owen uh, shared with me a while back a, a paradox I think he heard at school. And I, I looked it up. Uh, it's, it's actually a fairly well-known paradox that an 11-year-old came up with, 11-year-old son of a, a philosopher a while back. Uh, the paradox is known as the Pinocchio paradox, and it goes like this. Uh, what if Pinocchio were to say, my nose will grow now? Think about that. If Pinocchio is telling the truth, it cancels the possibility his nose will grow because it only grows when he tells a lie, right? Which means uh, his, uh, and, and that would turn his statement into a lie, which means his nose would grow, right? Which would make his statement true again. That doesn't really make sense. If, if he's telling a lie, his nose would grow, but that would make his statement true, uh, and his nose would not grow. So, I don't know, what do you think would happen? Maybe you can debate that later at, at around lunch. I, I think Pinocchio's nose would just break if he said something like that. Uh, well, we're looking this morning at the cross of Christ. Um, a great paradox, if there ever was one. Uh, the best event in history and the worst event in history at the same time. Um, G.K. Chesterton, 
who you know has some uh, maybe uh, quirky and, and troubling views, but a very wise, uh, very wise man writer describes its paradox in many ways: a savior who would not save himself, a king with no visible kingdom, uh, an immortal God who died so mortals could have eternal life, weakness as power, foolishness as wisdom. Um, Christianity, in fact, is is full of such paradoxes. So I want to consider this morning that maybe the chief paradox of the Christian life, uh, which the cross points us to. The Christian life is defined by victory and joy and peace. And at the same time, it's defined by suffering. Uh, we have victory over sin and death now in a real sense, and yet we face death still, and we struggle with sin. We have peace and comfort in the cross, and yet the cross is also a call and a pattern for the Christian life, a call to, to suffer uh, with Christ. So consider first with me, as you see on your outline there, the call of the cross to willing suffering. And the fact that it is Jesus' pattern and uh, promise. Uh, the New Testament makes clear that Jesus' willing suffering on the cross for what is right, for the will of his Father, the glory and plan of God, is a pattern for you uh, who follow him. Uh, what was the key taunt of Jesus? We just read uh, several uh, iterations of the taunts of Jesus. What was the key taunt of him while he was on the cross? It was, save yourself. right? Prove that you're the Son of God. Prove that you're a king, that you're blessed of God. Um, they, they supposed the, the one thing that would really prove that Jesus was who he was, seemed to be claiming to be, that he was powerful, that he was doing the work of God, that was that he would, could save himself at least. But we know that Jesus' mission and his obedience are, are precisely seen in the opposite. Right? In his, his refusal to uh, preserve himself, his refusal to resist the will of God and, and suffering. Uh, willingly suffering in the place of others as a sacrifice for sin. Uh, surely that was one of the greatest temptations, maybe the greatest temptation Jesus faced. Uh, he, just the night before, it said, I could call down 72,000 angels and put an end to this in a moment. It was the same temptation he faced uh, with Satan in, in the wilderness. Uh, the basic temptation, Jesus, you don't have to take the hard way. Right? Make some bread. Why starve? You could rule now. Well, until Jesus comes again and sets all things right, until sin and death are completely banished, uh, that's what discipleship looks like for you. It looks like willingness to suffer for what's right. It's maintaining trust in our Heavenly Father, no matter what He allows us to suffer. Uh, choosing what is good and right, even when it hurts, even when it's not the easy way. Uh, that's Jesus' pattern our lives. It's also Jesus' clear expectation and promise that, that the life of the Christian will be marked by suffering. He said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Right? He said to his disciples in Matthew 24, they would be hated, they would be dragged in front of rulers, thrown in prison, even, even killed. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus described discipleship in terms of taking up your cross, dying to self giving up everything, losing your life, um, being rejected by your family. And, and we can give many, many other descriptions from the New Testament, expectations of that. I want to secondly look at, at two illustrations in this passage that we read then uh, of this fact. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly that these are 
illustrations of discipleship, but I'm convinced it's at least uh, fair uh, to make it an illustration, a, a comparison, to draw a comparison, if in fact it's not intended uh, to be an illustration of discipleship here. Look at verse 21 first, the first verse that we read. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene's in Africa. Apparently that's where he's from. Um, and we don't know anything else about Simon uh, here or from history, from the rest of the New Testament, except that Mark, interestingly, uh, mentions his sons, Alexander and Rufus. It's, it's generally accepted that Mark is probably writing to the Romans, to the Roman Christians, and he clearly expects that those he's writing to know these guys. He's saying, this, this is Alexander and Rufus' dad. They carried the cross. Uh, interestingly, years later, there's uh, Paul is writing to the Romans as well, and as he's wrapping up his letter, uh, he mentions a Rufus uh, in, in the church there in Rome. Seems uh, quite possibly the same person. It seems Simon and his two sons became disciples of Jesus. But it was common to have a condemned person carry their cross beam, not the whole cross, but the, the cross beam to the place of crucifixion. It's also not surprising given the, what the flogging was that Jesus received, that he wasn't able to do that. Uh, and so Simon, maybe somewhat randomly, is, is forced to carry it for him. But it becomes a striking illustration uh, of what it means to follow Jesus. You think back into chapter 8, Jesus' own description of, dis of discipleship, what it means to follow him. He said, take up your cross and follow that, that saying has, bearing your cross in some ways, been adopted and cheapened uh, in, in pop culture. Something people say to reference some annoyance in life, maybe a pesky neighbor or a weight problem or a mean boss or something, people say, it's just my cross to bear. Um, the cross is not a symbol of, of annoyance or inconvenience um, or difficulty. It's a symbol of death, right? death of the person who's under the cross. Discipleship by Jesus' description was dying to self, dying to what you want, dying to what's simply comfortable or happy or fun, and, and choosing what is right and good and glorifying to God, even to the point of death, carrying your cross. And so we have Simon here literally carrying a cross, so literally following Jesus. I think perhaps pointing to the fact that this isn't just a saying, it's not just Christianese, it, it's a concrete reality, a necessity. For disciples, it, it comes to life, to life in real ways in, in our lives. It means willingly accepting the mocking of your faith, perhaps, uh, for the sake of Christ. It, it means rejecting anger and bitterness and, and choosing patience and, and love towards others. It means we don't begrudgingly endure just the realities and responsibilities of life, whether that's enduring a sickness or showing hospitality or changing diapers and washing dishes or whatever it is. We, we willingly, with trust, even joy, serve our Savior in, in the monotonies and the pains and the joys of life. We expect it to be hard. It's another, I think, acting out around the death of Jesus of, of the doctrinal meaning of these events. If we had more time, we could look at Jesus' trading place with Barabbas, which, which also seems a, an acting out of the meaning of, of his death. A second illustration I want you to see is uh, verse 27. We have a much shorter account here than in Matthew and Luke. 
simply says here, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And here I want you to think back to what the request of James and John when they came to Jesus was once. Uh, they came to him and they wanted the place of honor, right? The best place in his kingdom. They wanted to be on his right and on his left. And they didn't yet remotely understand Jesus' pattern, his call to suffering and humility and servant leadership and taking up a cross. So Jesus immediately warned them. He, he said, uh, paraphrasing, you don't know what you're asking for. Right? Do you know what honor is in my kingdom? Do you know what it costs? Do you know where it comes from? So fast forward to this pinnacle of Jesus' ministry revealing his, his kingdom. And, and the only time we're told in the Gospels then of who is on Jesus' right and on his left. And, and what's there? It's death. It's crosses. Again, I'm, I'm pointing to this as an illustration. These two men weren't there because they were disciples of Jesus. But in fact, one does come to faith. You can read about that in Luke 23 later. James 1 tells us to count our trials, our suffering as, as joy because God is at work in them for our good. Uh, for that, that one criminal on the side of Jesus, he was facing as well the worst possible suffering that day. But it was God's providence that he was there next to the Savior um, and, and recognized Jesus in his suffering. And, and while, the, while the disciples were, had, had run off because the cross appeared to them as, as failure, uh, the centurion and, and the criminal on the cross next to Jesus were, were able to recognize him as Savior in his suffering. Um, and, and he was saved for all eternity. Anyway, I think it's another illustration of the fact that the call to Jesus is a call to die. The cross and the Christian life that follows is a paradox. It's, it's power through weakness. It's life through death. Uh, wisdom and foolishness. Uh, it's a paradox that, that trips a lot of people up. Uh, they can't get past it. Uh, trips up and misguides, I think, even uh, many professing Christians. Uh, probably all of us to, to some degree and in various ways. And I want to address that in the next two points on your outline here with two questions. The first is, are, are you perhaps embarrassed by this call? And, and are you perhaps distracted from this call? And I'm spinning this off of the way that, that Paul, probably familiarly to us, describes the cross uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And, and I want to just, I, that's printed in your bulletin there too, I think, and just want us to, to meditate on that a little bit. Jesus said that the Jews who, who believe in the true God, they hope in the Messiah, uh, and yet a Messiah who died, they just can't get past that. A ridiculous idea. And then the Gentiles, for their part, similarly, a, a king, a savior, a son of God who was crucified, who was condemned and shamed uh, in, in the most shameful way possible in the Roman Empire. That's just stupid, too. What, what kind of a divine ruler and savior is that? And, and so thinking with that, first, are, are you perhaps embarrassed by this call? Do you perhaps identify with the Jews in, in being a bit embarrassed by the fact that the Christian life, Jesus said and patterned, is defined and shaped by by suffering? Is your life shaped more by pursuing what is comfortable, pursuing stuff or respect or health more than pursuing faithfulness, whatever the cost? That's not to suggest the Bible would have us seek out suffering and pain or shun medicine and pillows and fun and things like that uh, or 
you know, help people who are in need, alleviate their suffering. We enjoy many good gifts. Um, there's nothing wrong with mitigating the effects of the fall, but what, what shapes your life? Uh, what, what drives your life and your faith? Another way to ask this is, what is Jesus for? What is Jesus for in your life? How do you view or use your relationship to God? Another, maybe more specific way to, to, to put this is in prayer. Do you more readily run to God and say, God, take away my pain. Give me the job. Fix my problem. Fix this relationship. Or, more readily, first ask for patience. Ask for willingness to suffer for Christ. Ask for growth and trust in his plan. In other words, and there's nothing wrong with the first set of prayers, Lord, take away my, my pain, uh, or whatever, but, but do you view your relationship with God as, as a cosmic vending machine to, to turn to for more comfortable, prosperous, easy American life? Often that's the way we pray, first for healing, first for the money, first for the job. Uh, and, and maybe we get around to asking for patience and suffering. We view our relationship with him primarily as a source of grace for faithfulness and endurance of becoming like Jesus, patience until he comes again. Um, maybe some of you are familiar with sociologist Philip Reith. He is not a Christian. I think he's a Jew. But um, quite a few years ago now, he, he somewhat famously described uh, American Christianity, present American, present-day American Christianity in general, by, by noting that it seems people, many people go to church to feel happy, to be made to feel good. And, and his famous comment is that it seems in the past they went to have their misery explained to them. Right? Rather than escape it, to understand suffering. I know a believer who got caught up in a massive ministry here in Colorado Springs, predicated on how to access the power of God for your, for your life, but not the power for faith or endurance, or sanctification, but how to heal diseases, and make more money, and be successful, and overcome problems, outward, tangible, uh, physical problems. The, the Christian's relationship to God is viewed as, as a way to get physical, economic power and progress in the world. If you just believe the right way, if you just pray the right way, you can be successful, you can be healed, and so on. God is a, a cosmic vending machine. He's there to help you achieve the American dream. This is not what Jesus promised or, or demonstrated. Yes, Jesus healed some people for in a, in a very brief window of time for specific purposes with his preaching. I think many Christians sadly share in some degree of, of the embarrassment of the Jews. The, the cross is a call to suffer. It sadly destroys the example and expectation and gospel of Jesus. It, it turns Jesus into a sort of self-help miracle genie. And, and maybe I, most ironically and sadly of all, it, it really takes on the very perspective of Jesus' tormentors. Right? Surely suffering can't be the will of God. If you just have enough faith, if you just pray the right prayer, you'll understand the keys to unlock the power of God and be happy and healthy. You'd come, off, you'd come down off the cross. This attitude can leak into any of our expectations or prayers. It, it reflects... Again, that of the Jews, as Paul described, the cross is a stumbling block. They're ashamed of the idea of a suffering Messiah. This is true. It's Christ's true call, even as we know the love and grace of God. 
have resurrection life and eternity and know these things. Secondly, are you distracted perhaps from this call? Thinking of the other, the other half of Paul's description, fairly closely related to the previous point, but now thinking of terms in terms of the, the Gentiles there, that the cross is just foolishness. And suffering is just a waste of time. A lost opportunity. Doesn't it feel like that often? It's a hindrance to actually doing and accomplishing something. I see that in myself when I, I play the part of a whining victim rather than a willing sufferer. And, and in, in my life, I am sure that I'm talking about suffering that is far less than what, what many of you have probably endured. But, but just in everyday things. When I want to complain about other people or struggle and monotony of life or particular challenges of, of my calling or frustrations with parenting, whatever it is, I, I somehow think and act as if I'm above the pattern and call of Christ uh, and entitled to comfort rather than seeing these things as the very call of Christ, the very means of Christ to make me more like him, to share his sufferings. I, I see them as obstacles in the way of what I really want, what I really want to do, or really getting something done, or how I really want to feel. I was reading a, a book by Oz Guinness a, a little while back. It gives an example, I think a very good example, of um, what I'm talking about here writ large on American Christianity, uh, and a good challenge maybe to all of us. He, he laments the way the church has desired public influence and power, and pursuing that through particular political party that doesn't need to be named and, and over against Jesus call an example adopted probably a secular strategy of, of blaming and playing the part of a victim to gain influence and power. He writes this shame on such a deliberately chosen strategy. A strategy of victim playing should be unthinkable for followers of Christ. Put simply it is factually misleading, morally hypocritical, politically ineffective and psychologically dangerous. Worst of all it is unfaithful. A deliberate and outright denial of Jesus' teaching and call to suffering and rejection. And this is what we should expect to be as a church. He goes on, have these Christian leaders no shame. Let them scour the New Testament from beginning to end. They will not find one single line to justify the politics of anxiety and resentment that have characterized parts of their stand in public life. I think it's worth reflecting Comparatively, why, why is the church growing uh, so significantly in, in other parts of the world, places where it's outwardly persecuted far beyond our society? There certainly are many answers to that, answers we, answers we don't even know, but it seems to me it could at least be in part. There are many believers who are not playing the part of a whining victim. They've, they've been forced into suffering for Christ and are facing it with a bold witness to the lordship and victory of Christ, whatever their circumstances. I think maybe a lesson for us is to stop embracing patterns of anxious whining about leftist politics and cultural shift and embrace Christ's lordship and his call to victory through suffering. Uh, a lot to think about there. Secondly, and finally, uh, on your outline there, consider the call of the cross to faithful dying. The faithful dying. The death uh, of Christ on the cross conquered death. And death no longer is the last word for those who are in Christ. He purchased forgiveness and life for you. Uh, but until he returns, death remains a reality. It remains the ugliest and the hardest part of, of suffering. 
of this paradox of the Christian life. The hardest part is that life still ends in death. So I want to just very briefly consider with you how the cross points us to faithful dying, facing death after the pattern of our Savior. Our, our culture doesn't really know how to handle or talk about death, uh, so you get some bizarre, even contradictory handling of the topic. I, I took my kids to a YMCA near us um, several months ago, uh, one that has an, an ice skating rink we go to occasionally. This was in October. This will explain something of, of what I'm going to say. We're walking in, and, and my six-year-old Jake said, what is that? And he was looking at the seasonal decorations the Y had out on their lawn. It was severed bloody limbs and a, a severed head that had veins and ligaments hanging out of it and blood coming out of the eyes. This is what the Y laid out for kids to see on their way in. And, of course, probably many of our neighbors have similar things in their yard, ghosts and witches and graves, hands reaching out of the grave and so on. Displays and celebrations of death in some uh, strange way. Um, our, ours is a culture obsessed with death in one sense on TV and Halloween, and yet refuses to wrestle with it honestly, avoids the topic of actual death uh, often in many ways. Um, that, that bleeds into even into the church and, and uh, others uh, at times. And the way that we think about funerals or uh, don't want to be sad, people say death is beautiful or death is natural, things like that. In the paradox of the Christian life, we face death as, as grievous, as the last and greatest enemy. Um, totally unnatural, but we also face it with faith. You know, understanding it's not a judgment of God on us, it's not an ultimate end for us, we face it as our final calling, in a sense. Uh, a culminating calling of our Savior to faithfulness and trust and hope, uh, even through death. Uh, these, these chapters in Mark here, around what we've read, uh, display Jesus' faithful uh, dying, his dying well, as, as one commentator puts it. it, it th this whole week of his death uh, is evident, his majestic calm all the way through it, his, his unflinching love and concern for others all the way through it, his faith in his Father. Um, he received his death as a calling from the Father, and as Hebrews said, for the joy set before him endured uh, another paradox. So I would simply want to put this example, his example, in front of you, and reminding you it's not his example in the cross that's primary. He suffered in your place and purchased life for you, but his example is vital and powerful too. And death is and will be, uh, should the Lord not come first, uh, your calling as well. Jesus finished well. And again, the, the centurion and the criminal on the cross uh, were converted in watching how he died, uh, how he answered that call. Finishing and dying well will be one of your greatest opportunities for witness we're called to finishing well for the joy set before us. Again, I'm going to quote Os Guinness here. Thinking about this, he says, After a lifetime of journeying, we are arriving home. After all the years of hearing only the voice, we are about to see the face and feel the arms. The caller is our father, and the last call is the call home. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes beautifully, uh, not that death is beautiful, but describes beautifully uh, death as a call to cross the river. If you, 
remember that, that, that scene. Uh, cross the river to your father, who is the king. Uh, we could all probably give examples God has given in terms of the call to finish well uh, in faith and hope. I was recently reading of a faithful German believer uh, during World War II who was, was kind of a big deal in Germany. He was imprisoned uh, and eventually executed by the Nazis just a couple weeks before uh, the war, sadly. But he wrote to his wife just before his execution. He said, Dear heart, my life is finished. This doesn't alter the fact that I would gladly go on living and that I would gladly accompany you a bit further on this earth. But then I would need a new task for God. The task for which he made me is done. He goes on to make clear he saw this as another call, his last call on his life from God. Live out the paradox of this life with the example of Jesus before you. I want to close with a further reflection of of Chesterton on on Christian paradox. He gives many examples, uh, but this one on courage. uh, Courage bringing together some of what I'm talking about here in in terms of death as well. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that would lose his life will save it. It's not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It's a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. The paradox is the whole principle of courage. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he's to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strong carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, then he would be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water, yet drink death like wine. So may we live for Christ with a readiness to suffer, even to die, because we've been raised with him already. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word this morning, uh, this time that we can spend in looking at it and hearing it. We pray that uh, you would give us a good and careful reflection on um, not just what happened at the cross, but also what it what it patterns for our lives and the call of the cross uh, to our lives. Give us witness to others in that as you gave to the Lord Jesus uh, even right there as as he died. Uh, We pray all this in his name. Amen.